and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Pressurized, a short, punchy version of our main feed that gets right to the scientific point. If you like what you hear, you'd like to hear the full episode, you can find it in the same feed. And now, to get right to the point. Right, so I thought this episode we should speak to lots of people about submersibles, just because it's something that we've been doing quite a lot of recently. And to tie up continuing adventures of Vegemite and Haggis as well, so I think we should give Tim a phone anyway, see how he's doing. So here goes. So who better to get on the show to discuss where we left off on the last cruise than Mr. Tim Vegemite McDonald? Hi, Tim. Uh, good day, Mr. Haggis. How you doing? So last time we checked in with the podcast, we had just passed Indonesia on the way south, but mysteriously didn't mention why we were heading south. So the big reveal is we went to Australia. It's a wonderful place. So what did we do when we got to Australia, Tim? We did lots and lots of diving. Yeah, so we did... Six dives on North Australian Basin. They were kind of trials, dives, test dives, a little bit of science and everything else. And then we went to the glorious, beautiful town of Dampier, which was, to be fair, something a little akin to the Mad Max movies. Picked up a science crew, not the full complement because of COVID and then everything else, that we ended up with a reduced science party. And we headed out to the Wallaby Zenith Fracture Zone, which I don't know about you, Tim, but I thought those were the coolest dives we'll probably ever do. I also thoroughly enjoyed them. It's extremely dynamic, much more than I thought it was going to be, and a lot more diversity in animals than I was expecting, especially after our last dives in the Philippine Trench, which was uh, comparatively sparse, which is to be expected. It was another 4,000 metres deep. Yeah, the fracture zone was cool because the fracture zone was a a real mixed bag of stuff. So the bottom of the the fracture zone itself is very soft sediment. There was a whole bunch of different species level in there, and then the walls of the fracture zone were basically an unbelievably dense manganese polymetallic nodule field which was one of the spookiest things i think we've ever done yes i think it was the one time i've been in a sub where i've thought i don't like it here i want to go home it was just unbelievably spooky. <laughs> it's too spooky no idea why yes very eerie and the eyes just couldn't understand what was going on it was just all the grayscale black manganese nodules and this white sediment and they were just the first place we came down on was just this most unbelievably dense, perfectly uniform field of perfectly round manganese nodules as far as you could see with the lights. And it was so disorientating. And you just uh, we got to some points during the dive, Alan and I, we just had to stop the sub and be like, my eyes just can't comprehend what is happening out there. We just need to stop for a minute. You know, it was insane. It's the grayscale of it all. Your, your eyes start to make... The highlights and the lowlights shift. Suddenly it starts to look like a billion dimples in the seafloor and stuff like that. It really plays with your eyes. But then that dive got even weirder as well because we went up the manganese bit. We're having a look up there. And uh, it all sort of dropped away about 4,000 metres or so. And we're like, okay. Things got a bit more sort of rugged and weird looking at the window. And it looked like, it kind of looked as if someone had tarmacked a highway down the side of the slope. It's like, what's that? Went over it and it did look like it was basically a volcano, an old lava flow, just black asphalt road <laughs> so it's just like oh well so we sat on that for a bit and then went up the top of that and went up the side of a volcano but again then the diversity changed again so there's there's a whole bunch of species that live on the soft sediment and then there's a whole bunch that live on the manganese and when you go up to the top of the seamount contrary to what everyone thinks about seamounts the top was almost completely void of life there was just loads of stock sponges but that was about it really so the whole the whole area was just really fascinating and really tall just like these vertical cliff faces almost with 
these big three meter high pinky width stalks holding this big glass sponge on the end, pure white, just like ghost white against this black rock. It was, yeah, it was very bizarre. Yeah, so after the fragile zone, I thought one of the just as equally as interesting was we went over and what did we do? Six dives on the fracture zone, I think, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then we went to the Wallaby Cuvier Escarpment, which is not a place most people have probably heard of, but it's about 500 miles long and about two to two and a half thousand meters high, and it's in two steps. So there's about a thousand meter near vertical wall, then there's a little terrace, and then there's another near vertical thousand meter wall on top of that. And what Tim and I did was on one dive went to the bottom and then we basically hopped all the way up the bottom terrace and then the next day we dove on the terrace and then hopped all the way up to the top and it was a bit bizarre as well yeah that second step Do you remember the uh, was it hop number three on the second dive i think it was was the weirdest one i think just even when we got to the bottom of the step and there was all those rocks that were sitting on these black rocks that were sitting on this white sediment which is abnormally white sediment and they looked like Someone had been down there with a shotgun blasting them and just had all their, or they'd all been exploding or something. It all just That's right, yeah. shards yeah. of rock scattered across this. And again, it was very black rock and very white sediment. And it was just very, con- it was bizarre. I forgot about that. And yeah. Little, the, the exploding rocks. Like, yeah. yeah. And the little round, perfect balls that look like little poos. Like, I'm starting pyramid. to think they are eggs because there's one point where the sub gets close enough to them that one of them just starts rolling across the seafloor, which makes me think they're not. Slow sediment bioturbating mm. things and they're not poo they're probably something which is genuinely a round thing because they roll like golf balls across the seafloor and they're piled in little places they're not just accumulating there in the currents there's somebody's put them no, there they, look, they did look like they've been placed which is weird because that was about six thousand meters as well it wasn't us no it wasn't us Should, are we going to talk about the, the moving target on the scanning sonar oh uh, <laughs> i don't know i don't know what to we make of that i was, saw... I was I told tom about this the other day and we just i just Found myself sounding like a UFO in that case. There's a lot of UFO <laughs> stuff going on right now. Yeah, I haven't mentioned it. And when you mentioned it, when we came back to the surface, I was like, Alan, don't say anything. Everyone's <laughs> going to think we're crazy. <laughs> it was definitely, it was big. I mean, it was 100 metres away, 90 to 100 metres away. Came up on the sonar bigger than our landers, which are a metre and a half high and a metre wide. I was like, what is that? So I reversed the sonar to scan past it again. And as it scanned past it again, it had moved like... 20 or 30 meters and then swept back the other way again and it was gone and we drove to where we thought it was and nothing there so it can only be ufos right mm, subsea UFOs. that was quite freaky though i must admit and i do sound like a mad person i'm trying to tell people all that and they're like oh yeah you must have been mistaken and then i was trying to think where it could be because it was obviously something big it's like to get a return as strong as that it's got to be either metal or air mm-hmm. i don't believe whales are diving to six thousand meters but then I don't know who else would have a vehicle at 6,000 metres, hundreds of miles away from anywhere without any ships on the radar whatsoever. Yes. So it can only be aliens. What would you place the size at? Like a couple of metres, three metres? Ah, yeah, maybe three metres. So you're in sort of glider territory. It could be, yeah. Uh, it would be bigger than a glider, though. It have to be. The diameter of it would have to be bigger than uh, it was, it was robust. a normal agavia size. But maybe, maybe a 6,000 metre glider size. Potentially, or a 6,000 meter RV. But it sounds more maneuverable than a glider. So. What are the odds, though? Even if one was but just it was very... autonomously bobbing up and down to be 100 meters off or about on and one random dive in the middle of the Indian Ocean. It would have to be very close to the bottom. Yeah. 
Anyway, we, could, we, 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 we mustn't dwell too much on this because we will get a reputation of being crazy people. But there was something <laughs> odd on the scanning sonar. And unfortunately, we're never going to know what it was. But it was enough to make a series of really spooky, weird dives in the middle of the Indian Ocean even weirder. What we did find, though, was another spooky place. Top of the terrace. I think it was the second or third hop. Up until that point, the slope was kind of like uh, steep and gnarly. Lots of interesting things on it. Lots of sediment, lots of rockfall. And then one of them, we just sort of went up 200 metres, came across to the slope again, and it felt like we had just sort of slid sideways into the back of a gothic cathedral. <laughs> it was weird as. It was, yeah, very bizarre. We were using our altitude so we can measure how far off the seafloor we are. We were using that as a bit of an indication about how close we were to the wall, and then you would see it on the sonar. But we were still, I don't know, nearly 80 metres off the seafloor coming in, and this massive return came in on the sonar. And when I was like, that's just, just doesn't seem right. And it was bizarre and we came in close and turned and we were just facing this 50 to 70 meter high sheer wall you look down through the bottom viewport and it just disappeared into black you couldn't see the bottom of it and we just happened to be right near the top and the same as these beautiful big stalk sponges just hanging off the side and it wasn't a straight line wall it was like a big almost like a 200 250 degree arc we ended up in the middle of this big crazy canyon kind of feature. Got some amazing imagery on the sonar, on our 3D, 360 degree rotating sonar, which was amazing. It's funny that because the cameras on the sub are fixed. And I was looking back at some of the videos of that and I don't think any of the videos really captured the scale and this sort no, of yeah, how ominous that whole area was. When you sort of look up with your own eyes and you see the whole thing, it's almost like the whole seafloor has collapsed on itself. And then you're looking down through the other viewport and as you say, it just disappears into the void. And you're just like, what on earth caused this? Yeah. I kind of felt like if you were flying a helicopter in the clouds and then all of a sudden you came across Table Mountain. Yeah. Just these crazy... In the dark. In the dark, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I thought that whole... I mean, well, to, just to finish that off, we, we did a couple of dives on the escarpment and then we made a run down to Perth and the what we were going to do is a dive on Perth Canyon, but the weather was... We got really beaten up between the escarpment and the canyon to the point where a multi-beam station came off the wall and our minus 80 started coming off the wall and <laughs> it got really beaten up but by the time we got to the canyon it was uh, not too bad but it, the weather was marginal so we didn't do the last big dive and that was us that was our big three-month extravaganza probably longer for you though Tim you've been on there for about a year now right uh yeah I had was a year and five days by the time I stepped off the ship <laughs> wow <laughs> I had a lot of fun in between I can't complain so there we go. So that was what we've been doing the last three months, and that's why I've been away. And I think the last three months has actually been amazing. Our next guests today on our special submersible episodes are two legends in the deep sea submersible field, and those are Mr. Patrick Lahey and Mr. Frank Lombardo. How are you doing, guys? Very well, thank you, Al. Pretty good, Alan. Cool, cool. So starting with you, Patrick. You've had quite a interesting and colourful career in terms of the amount of time and the variety of ways in which you've spent underwater. Could you give us a quick history of your underwater career? Sure. My underwater career began when I went to commercial diving school. I was uh, 19 years of age. And shortly thereafter, I began working for a commercial diving company in Santa Barbara, California. And early in my career, probably about two years into it, when I was about 21, I was asked if I'd be interested in operating a sub, learning how to operate a sub, which I eagerly and enthusiastically uh, said yes to, and have really been working with human-occupied vehicles or submersibles ever since. I'm now 59, so I've been doing that for probably a lot longer than I should have been doing it, 38 years or whatever. 
but I love it. I'm passionate about these underwater vehicles and the places they can take you. And I feel quite privileged to have had a career spanning nearly four decades doing it. Nice. And Frank, how did you get into subs in the first place? I've never actually asked you this. Well, I also started as a commercial diver very young. I didn't go to a school. I was trained on the job by a company in Fort Lauderdale that was uh, accredited to train divers. And from there, I actually went to school for uh, marine electronics, basically a technician course. And after that, worked with marine electronics on ships and also did quite a bit with uh, Harbor Branch Oceanographic, at which time I was able to start working for them on their sub crew and uh, worked with the Johnson Sealing submersibles and the Clelia boat for 16 years. And after that, worked offshore in the ROV industry. And then nicely now, I'm back in manned submersibles again. But yeah, again, it's been around a 30-year kind of thing for me too. So the other thing we've just been discussing, manned submersibles and new use in science and everything else. But the one thing I was surprised at when I started working with you guys was the fact that there's probably a lot more submersibles in the field which are not scientific at all. I didn't appreciate how big the sort of private sector, the commercial luxury market is for submersibles. So roughly speaking, how many do you think there are out there? That's a good question. I can say that there are about 19 Tritons out there, but there are many others because we have competitors. But yeah, so I I would say there must be, you know, 40, 50, maybe 60 uh, human-occupied vehicles that have been built for recreation. But it's not quite as simple as that because although they've been built for recreation, many of our clients actually use their subs for a lot more than just you know, going down and having a jolly. Many of them are using them for legitimate scientific research projects, for filming projects. And the things that are being done in some ways remind me a little bit of what happened in the 60s when there was a lot of private funding for marine science research. I mean, let's face it, you know, Al, you probably better than most people know that the government budgets for marine science research shrink every year. Mm. But private funding is critical to the future of marine science research. And certainly our clients are a great example of that. We've got a number of clients who are very prominent in marine science research and are doing some really fantastically exciting stuff with their subs. And we're delighted to be part of that and even happier to see that human-occupied vehicles are once again an important tool in the toolbox. Do you think there's going to become more? Do you think mass submersibles are on the up? I do. I absolutely believe that human-occupied vehicles, submersibles, are becoming an increasingly important tool. It doesn't mean that ROVs aren't another essential tool, and AUVs and many other things, landers, and so on. But as you know from your experience in diving in a human-occupied vehicle, you know, your ability to take information in in real time and to see things happening and make decisions based on that is really an incredibly effective tool for collecting information, collecting samples. So to me, they are going to continue to increase in, in numbers, you know, whether it's uh, for the purpose of recreation, you know, so somebody that has a private yacht that wants to go and see what's underwater, or that somebody decides to do something more, which, as I mentioned, many of our customers have done. They may have started out with the intention of using the subs recreationally, but they quickly realize that the submersibles are quite versatile and they can be equipped to do a wide range of tasks underwater. And that's where the fun begins. Yeah. So speaking of fun, Frank, all those years in the Johnson Sea Link, 
Is there any particular dive that sticks in your mind as being one of the best you've ever done? Uh, there are quite a few, but one of the coolest things I can remember was uh, a dive with Dr. Edie Witter. We were supposed to be doing bioluminescence study, but we were in the Bahamas and came across a big female six-gill shark ready to give her pups. And wow. we're, I was able to put the sub right on her tail as she was swimming, and we filmed her giving birth. Wow. Which apparently at that <laughs> well, time good was the first time that had been done. It's probably the only time it's been done, right? As far as I know, I've never heard any others having done it. Wow. It was amazing. It was something very, very cool that I was really privileged to see. Wow, that's incredible. What about you, Patrick? What's the one that stands out for you? I think it would be difficult to distill it down to a single dive. You know, I've been fortunate doing this for nearly 40 years to have had some really memorable experiences in submersibles, you know, whether it was being part of the Space Shuttle Challenger recovery effort in 1986 or diving to full ocean depth with you or, or with uh, Jonathan Struby. But I think from the standpoint of something that really made an impact on me personally, the dives that I did in Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands with the scientists from the American Museum of Natural History, I think it was back in maybe 2015 or 2016, were really incredible. And I think we're a great demonstration of why a human-occupied vehicle is so powerful. We were doing a vertical transect from a thousand meters and then stopping every hundred meters, capture that vertical migration that you're so familiar with. And I think around 700 meters, we were doing it in total darkness and we were striking a high powered strobe from inside the submarine in the hundred meter increments when we came to a stop. And I think around 700 meters and I set off the strobes, it lit up the water column as far as you can see in all directions. Of course, you're sitting inside of a transparent pressure hull. And the two scientists that were in there with me I think it was Dr. Vince Pierrebone and uh, David Gruber, both of whom were with the American Museum of Natural History at the time, were just completely awestruck by the site. And I remember saying to them both, I said, so can you imagine what kind of an imaging system could ever capture what it's like for you to sit here now in this sub and look out and see what you're seeing? And both of them agreed yeah. that it would be an impossible thing to achieve. I mean, even with the most advanced imaging systems in the world, there's no way that you could have duplicated what it was like to sit in that chair and see this incredible spectacle of the entire water column lit up. And then one of the coolest things was I grabbed a flashlight and I flashed the flashlight a couple of times. And off in the distance, an animal, you know, flashed back the same number of flashes. <laughs> and the scientists, and these are like you, Al, you know, these are PhD scientists. And I think one of them said, did you can see that? <laughs> um, and, you know, it's that type of profound impact that really underscores the importance of the submersible, because that's something that you take away that will absolutely change your perception of the ocean forever. And that's where human-occupied vehicles really stand out. It's funny, I was saying much the same to uh, Tim about one of the last dives we did on that last job, about halfway up the escarpment and we went to this place and it was just three-dimensionally just really bizarre and really spooky and really quite striking. And going back and looking at the videos, none of it does it justice. You don't even get a sense of, of scale or, or the feeling or just this sort of magnitude of what, where you were sat. And yeah, it comes back to that thing. You just can't record that. You can't. And so whenever anybody asks me, you know, because you often encounter people that say, oh, well, you know, you don't really need human occupied vehicles. You know, they're dangerous. There's no point in putting human beings at risk. And I, I'd say, OK, well, then let me ask you a question. Imagine, you know, your, your wife is going to give birth to your child. And, you know, you can be in the room physically present. You know, the baby is born and they hand her or him to you. Or you could just 
hire like a videographer to record it for you. You can watch it later on the TV. What do you think would leave a more <laughs> lasting impact? Exactly. And, uh, I think that is exactly what we're talking about. That is the essence of the human presence on the site with our senses, able to drink in that information in ways that no imaging system, no sensory system could do. So what's next for deep subs then? Do you know, in Triton, you've got the deep view, which is a kind of shallow water fun bus. <laughs> and there's, there's a casino one, right? It's got a poker table on it. And <laughs> there's the scientific ones. There's the Titanic concept design and stuff like that. I mean, is it just about expanding the diversity of vehicles to fit whatever market it may be? Or is there something within the whole industry that really needs to be addressed to open it out? Or you know, where is the future of man subs? You know, we've sort of driven a wedge into a, a room and we're kind of opening it. And what we're discovering is that there's a whole range of people with interests that are different, as you might expect. So, you know, at the end of the day, Triton Submarines is a design and engineering firm. We often are challenged by our clients and their requests. So often a customer will come to us as they did, for example, with the, the Triton 3306. Customer loved the Triton 3303, which you know, we're building our 10th one now. Liked it so much, but said, could you build one that would carry six people? Well, it's an easy thing to ask, but it's not such an easy thing to deliver. We had to go back to the drawing board and discover if we could build a sphere as big and as thick as would be necessary to carry that many people to that sort of depth. And we were pleased to see that with the advances that have been made in materials technology, we could actually deliver on that request. Similarly with Project RevOcean, another really incredibly exciting program where they want to have a sub that could dive to 7,500 feet, 2,300 meters, that could carry three people. Again, an unprecedented achievement. We've just completed the sphere for that sub, which is going to be 320 millimeters thick. Talking about wow. a sphere that's almost 13 inches in thickness, for those of you who still use the biblical units of measure. And, and it's a, just an incredible thing to see how far we've taken it. But what we love to do at Triton is push the envelope. And often those opportunities are created by our clients and their desire to do something specific. For example, you know, Victor. Victor came to us and he wanted to dive a submarine to the deepest point in each of the five oceans. And when he approached us, you know, it wasn't really a very fully formed idea, but it, it challenged us to come up with a concept design, which we presented to him after a year. And then, you know, to our surprise and delight, you know, he signed a manufacturing contract, which took us two years to complete. And the rest, as they say, is history. But those opportunities, which are afforded to us by our clients and allow us to innovate and create these type of new submersibles is what I enjoy most. I think I can say everybody here enjoys that challenge the most. And I do see that we're going to continue to push the envelopes. So what's the future? Well, I personally would like to build a sub that could carry uh, two or three people to full ocean depth that had a transparent pressure boundary. Imagine mm -hmm. you as a scientist, how much more impactful, how much more information you could drink in if you were sitting inside of a transparent pressure boundary. The challenge yeah. is that, you know, we can't do it with acrylic, which is the material that we will be using in our subs all the way to 4,000 meters. So if we want to go to 6,000 meters and beyond, maybe even to 11,000 meters, we'd be looking at using glass as the pressure boundary material, which uh, I know that many people may not think is an appropriate or a suitable material, but actually it's really exciting possibility of building a sub like that, you know, I think it would be one of the most important subsea technology developments of the age. That's interesting because we spoke to James Cameron a few episodes ago and at the end we asked him, is there anything you would want? 
what's the next thing in deep sea exploration? And what he said was a foolish and depth glass sphere. Like you just exactly what you just described. Yeah. That was his that was yeah. his wish list. Well, actually, it is James who you know it was back in 2011 when we first presented our concept for glass pressure hull design. This was before he built or completed and dived the deep sea challenger. And I think you know, like everybody, certainly somebody like Jim who is you know a a kindred spirit, you know, he's somebody who loves the ocean and is really interested in the things that are happening in it. He recognizes, as anybody does, how much more, you know, you could do and accomplish and see with a transparent pressure hull. And, and in fact, yes, he's expressed interest in being a customer. And in fact, mm -hmm. our hope is that we can build him a pair of 6,000 meter rated glass pressure hull equipped subs that can dive to 6,000 meters. He's the, wow. the perfect person to to use a craft like that to its maximum potential. Cool. Well, guys, That's thanks very amazing. much for that. It's been wonderful to finally have you on board because it's been, we're on episode 13 now, so uh, it was about time you guys were on. Excellent. All right, guys, well, have a great rest of the day and an excellent weekend. Thanks, Al. Cheers, Frank. Of course, as ever, we're going to hear from the legendary Don Walsh, but how on earth is Don's entire submersible career going to fit in five minutes? Hello, I'm Don Walsh, explorer and oceanographer. Today I'd like to talk about another manned submersible sector, tourist submarines. These are large manned submersibles that can carry up to 64 passengers. And these are not to be confused with those used in boutique operations, uh, where you're just taking two or three people for a dive or on board private yachts. We're talking about large submersibles that can carry many people down inside the ocean. The first practical T-subs, I call them T-subs, began their operations in the mid-1980s. About that time, I started consulting in this area and have actually piloted four of them on test dives. Atlantis Submarines in Vancouver, Canada, pioneered this business, building the first practical T-sub in 1985. Eventually, they built 14 of the Atlantis series, ranging in passenger capacities from 28 to 64 passengers. Most of them were 48 passengers, and 10 are still operational today. Now, let's look at the generic tourist submarine. I mean, by generic, it's just sort of a, a typical one. They will have 48 to 50 passengers, plus two crew members. The pilot's up front behind a large acrylic hemidome that actually makes up one end of the pressure hull, huge viewing window, if you will. And the second crewman is in the back for safety and also as the naturalist narrator of what's going to be seen during the dive. Most of them have a depth capability of 150 feet. You really don't need to go much more than that because at 100 feet, there's a definite extinction, if you will, of color in the ocean. The first color to uh, go away is red. And in fact, what some tourist submarine operators do is they'll put a little smear of lipstick in the palm of your hand. And when you get down to about 100 feet, you'll notice that it's almost turned black and at 150 feet, it is totally black. You have no red left. So to see all of the colors and such that are involved in the, inside the ocean, getting down to 100 feet is quite adequate. 150 feet is perhaps more for bragging rights. The T-subs are fitted with uh, a series of large viewports so that almost every passenger on board has a private viewport. And some of these are up to 30 inches in height, so you have a very good view outside during the dive. A typical dive will last about 45 minutes of actual submerged time, and the dive experience is enhanced in many places with the creation of artificial reefs 
And in some cases, they even have a diver that will come down and hand feed the fish. So you've got lots of those wonderful Kodak moments. Today, there are only two companies in the world that still build tourist submarines. One in Finland called Moby Mar, and the other in the United States, the Triton Submarine Company. Has it been a good business? Well, yes, if you know what you're doing, but you have to be in the right place. And Atlantis, throughout its history, they've carried 12 million passengers with no serious incidents other than a few slip and fall accidents. This number of passengers is greater than all of crews of all the Navy's military submarines since the first naval submarine became operational before World War I. No diving training is required to permit almost anyone to visit the inside of the ocean. So next time you're in an area where one is operating, do it. You'd be glad you did. Thank you for listening. was a pressurized version of one of our longer episodes. If you enjoyed that and you would like to hear the full length episode, just match the episode numbers and you'll be able to find the full length version in the feed. Thanks for listening. We'll deep see you next time and I abyss you already.